like to encourage you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and join me in Ephesians chapter 5. We have, over the last several weeks, been working our way through a study in the book of Acts, and Luke has recorded for us, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, several different situations or instances where the early church dealt with persecution. Persecution on a level that very few of us perhaps have ever witnessed or heard about in any connection of a personal nature. We have witnessed imprisonment, we have witnessed abuse, we have witnessed even martyrdom and murder. And in our study of the book of Acts, it has been undeniable that in spite of the hardship and in spite of the persecution, the early church explosively grew. The potency of the gospel of Jesus Christ is evident. Sinners are responding to the truth and are being saved and baptized and added to the church daily, the Bible tells us. We also know that individual Christians were growing personally in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as they gathered together and studied the word and functioned as a church. From that, we derive as a fact that no matter the hardship, no matter the perilous nature of our times, the gospel of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. But in order for us to experience what the early church experienced, which is explosive growth, potency of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and individual spiritual maturity, we have to be intentional. This is not a passive thing. And for us to arrive at that point of intentionally having the gospel potently impact our world and grow, we have to get relevant and practical. And I love that the Bible is just that. And in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read two verses this morning where the Apostle Paul helps us to grasp how we can arrive practically at that place. He is writing to a church that he was a part of starting. He's writing to a church that his beloved son in the faith, his protege Timothy is currently pastoring. This church is a church that deals with some hardship. This is a church in the midst of a pagan city. This is a church that in every practical way has an uphill climb to make an impact. And the Apostle Paul is not naive to that. And so he writes to them in verses 15 and 16, and I'll read there this. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. That is an interesting phrase to me, because the days are evil. He wrote to Timothy, it is in his personal letter to Timothy, that he warns him that in the last days perilous times shall come. He is writing here to the church that Timothy pastors that I get it, you are in evil days, but you must seize the moment and do something in it rather than go and hide. Doesn't it seem like the Apostle Paul would more practically write, because the days are evil, you should go and isolate yourself and hide away? 
Because the days are evil, you should cover your eyes and close your ears and cover your mouth and not say anything. Because the days are evil, you should run up the flag of surrender and you should realize that our run, as good as it was, is over. No, the Apostle Paul exhorts them to action. Ephesians chapter 5 is all about change. In this passage of scripture, he, in verse 1, tells us to be followers of God as dear children. Just like a little child would follow their father, so should we follow ours. In verse 2, he tells us that we should walk in love even as Christ also hath loved us. Just like Jesus loved, so should you love. Just like a child follows their father, so should you follow your father. By verse 8, he says this, you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye children, are ye light in the Lord? Walk as children of light. That phrase is all through Ephesians 5. You were something, but now you are something else. And if I were to boil it down to the simplest terms, Paul would say, now act like it. You are a follower of God, so act like it. You have been loved by Christ and saved by Christ, now act like it. You once were darkness and acted like it, now you are light, act like it. It is very practical what he is telling us. And there's pressure on us. There is overt, outside pressure from this world to conform to the image of this world. That's why the apostle exhorts us to be not conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This world is constantly pressing us into its form, pressing us into its shape, and we must resist Transformed by the renewing of our mind in the word of God. There is subliminal pressure. There are people that are in our lives that that are not followers of Christ and we are pressed to conform to their lifestyle. There is internal pressure. There's the pressure that exists within us, the pressure of the old nature. There are those wanton passions and lusts of the flesh that are constantly trying to divert our attention away from the things of Jesus Christ. We live in a hard, dark world that is dominated by sin. Jesus never denied that. The Apostle Paul is not hiding from that. The church did not try to navigate its way out of that. It just ministered within that. And we who are redeemed should be different. And that's what I want to communicate to you this morning. How can we intentionally, practically apply scripture to get to the place that in spite of hardship and persecution, we experience growth personally and corporately and potency of the gospel message. The first thing we must establish, and we'll kind of work our way backwards through these verses, is from the phrase he closes verse 16 with, the days are evil. Paul is not naive about the evil nature of the days. We don't have to act like sin is not rampant. We don't have to act like our world is not filled with violence and bloodshed and greed and lust and materialism. We don't have to hide from that fact. The days are evil. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the believers in Galatia, speaking of Jesus, he said this in Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present 
evil world according to the will of God and Father. Jesus saved us to rescue us from this present evil world. We are different. We are peculiar and we are a royal caste as children of the king. Paul was not naive about the evilness of his day. He knew it firsthand. Paul grasped the struggle with sin. I am so glad for Romans chapter 7. Because in Romans chapter 7, Paul gives us a personal accounting of his struggle against sin and the flesh. I like it because I, like Paul, struggle against sin, don't you? Sometimes I don't struggle against sin. You say, yeah, I know what it's like to be perfect too. I don't mean that I don't struggle against sin and perfection. I mean, sometimes I just lay down without putting up a fight. I don't even struggle against sin. I just overtly and outright sin. I'm actually really good at it. It comes natural to me. I am a gifted sinner. The thing is, you are too. We know the world is evil. We struggle with it on the inside. Paul tells us that. Overtly, the apostle Paul felt the sin of others, did he not? When he was stoned, when he was beaten, when he was imprisoned. He ministered uphill for the cause of Christ, there is no doubt. He went without food and without clothes and without shelter. He was harassed in almost every city that he went in for the cause of Jesus Christ. We know that he suffered some kind of chronic ailment. He begs God to take this ailment from him. God answers him back by saying, no, I'm not going to take that from you. In your weakness, I can be strong and my grace is sufficient for you. He knew what it was to struggle against the corrosion, the curse that sin brings upon us. Paul knew this world was evil. And yet he ministered on. Maybe he has specifically in his mind the corrupt and debauched lifestyle of the city of Ephesus. You can study out the historic city of Ephesus. They were absolutely dominated by an idolic nature and lifestyle. Almost every door had an idol in front of it. His city is no doubt surrounding them. And, and, and the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 20, as he was leaving the city of Ephesus, as he was leaving the elders of the church there in Ephesus, he was warning them by saying, listen guys, there is going to be grievous wolves. There are going to be individuals who try to infiltrate your church. He's saying to them, there is going to be heresy that arises from within. You are going to constantly be under attack. And so now he's coming back and he's saying, I get it. The days are evil, but you must press on. Within a hundred years of this letter that he writes to the church at Ephesus, Christians are going to be burned alive thrown to wild beasts, brutalized in countless other ways. The evil times that the church of Ephesus was ministering in would only become more and more evil. Several decades after the apostle pens this letter to the believers at Ephesus, we read in the book of Revelation, God assessing the church at Ephesus. I don't like tests, not because I don't like tests, I don't like what tests expose about me. And what we are hearing is God grading the exam, as it were, of the church of Ephesus. Listen to what he writes in Revelation 2.2. 2. This is John writing. I know thy works, speaking of the church at Ephesus, and thy labor, and thy patience, 
and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. That's a good thing. God is grading the church at Ephesus, and he is saying, I see how busy you are. I see all of your external activity. You are doing an exceedingly good job. He comes back and he says this in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul tells us that any ministry that we do that is not motivated by love, it amounts to zero. And so God, looking at the church at Ephesus, is saying, I'm not, I'm not grading you negatively because you're busy. You're really busy. I see your ministry. I see your carefulness. I just have somewhat against you because you are now motivated by something other than love. You have now settled for mere externalism and formalism. He will give them this warning in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. At some point in time, the church at Ephesus began to languish in their devotion for the Lord. At some point in time, they lost their sense of urgency to minister to their evil world motivated by love. And it is fact that God in assessing them says, if you do not repent and you do not return to that first work, if you do not find motivation by love, I will put your candlestick out. In effect, I will remove your light from this world. You will no longer be of use. Sometime during the second century, history will tell us the church in Ephesus just disappears. Because the church at Ephesus did not heed Paul's advice and the Lord's own specific warning, it ceased to exist instead of helping redeem the evil days that they were ministering in, the church fell prey to the evil days that they ministered in. Instead of learning from this exhortation from Paul, they capitulated and so we established this from the onset. The days are evil. We acknowledge that. How do we practically have an impact in them? Here's the first simple truth. It's from this passage. Walk circumspectly. See then that you walk circumspectly. See then it's got to be based on something that came prior. And in verse 14, he is talking about salvation. Seeing then that you are a Christian. Seeing then that you have been saved. Walk circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise. Don't live your life like a fool would. Live your life like a wise person would. And if you are like me, you're thinking to yourself right now, I want to please God. I want to be like Jesus. I want to walk circumspectly. I just don't know what circumspectly means. Circumspectly is the idea of a soldier who is navigating a minefield, who must walk very carefully through the minefield, or some terrible, tragic mishap can occur. As I was working through high school and college, I did a lot of yard work. I would spray fertilizer and I would deal with weeds and I would put plants out and mulch out. And, and on very, very, very many occasions, I would be working in a yard where the homeowner owned a large beast. And they would let the dog out in the yard and the dog would, it's a Sunday morning and this is live stream, and I would say just the dog would relieve itself and then go back in the house. And then I would enter the yard to work. 
And if you were not careful in how you walked through the yard, you might take some of the yard with you back into the truck. And you would be aware that some of the yard came with you because of the smell. And so when I entered a backyard where somebody owned a large dog, do you know how I would walk? Circumspectly. I would look before I stepped so that I did not step in something I did not want to step in. If I was clearing a minefield, I would walk circumspectly trying to view every step that I took. I would be careful realizing that tragedy was only one step away. And what Paul is saying here is this, if you used to be a fool, but you've been made wise in Christ, then walk wisely. Then act like it. Practice the position that you are in. Walk is daily conduct. It's a daily pattern. It's a daily life. Don't act foolishly and step on one of Satan's minds. Choose your steps carefully. The enemy has strewn your path with dangerous obstacles that will cause you serious spiritual harm if you're careless. Yes, the days are evil. And based on that real fact, we're not naive about that. Based on the fact that the days are evil, walk carefully. One author said this, Many Christians just saunter through the minefield with no awareness of the grave danger that they face. He said, if you are careless about how you walk, how you spend your time each day, you will not get through life without a serious mishap. Now just stay with me one second. We have looked in the book of Acts. We have been aware that hardship and persecution existed on a level that we are not experiencing. And yet the church grew and the gospel was potent. That did not happen passively. That did not just occur. People were intentional about that. How can I be intentional about navigating life in a practical way that will help me to accomplish that when the days are evil? We're seeing from Paul, here's how to do it. Number one, walk circumspectly. Your daily life and your daily pattern. Your daily habits should be carefully implemented to honor the Lord and to guard against the flesh. But not only does he say walk circumspectly, he uses what I think is a very relevant phrase, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil, redeem the time. It's a word that the ancient Greeks used to speak of the marketplace, to buy up. In outlying villages, the marketplace would often be set up on one day of the week. Merchants would come in and they would sell their wares and farmers would come together and they would sell their food and you had that one day of the week to buy up all of your necessities for the coming days. And if you passed up that opportunity and you did not redeem that time in the marketplace, you missed your opportunity and now had to wait until the market was set up again. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us is life-changing. What he is teaching us is attitude pivoting. He is not saying the days are evil, so go and cry in a corner. 
He is not saying the days are evil, so bemoan your existence and make sure everybody knows that you can't do anything and you can't have any impact because it's really hard in your world. Rather, he says, understand that the evil days have given you a golden opportunity that you must buy up. You are confronted with this opportunity and you must grasp it now. One commentator said, how foolish to stumble along through life and never seek to know the will of the Lord. Instead of walking circumspectly, we miss the mark, we miss the road, we end up suffering on some detour. God wants us to be wise. As we obey his will, we buy up the opportunities and do not waste time and energy and money and talent and that which is apart from his will. Lost opportunities may never be regained. They are gone forever. We are in days that are seemingly hard. They are no doubt evil. We seem to have an uphill climb to have an impact. And rather than view it as a defeatist would, we should rather be exhorted and encouraged to realize we have an opportunity that we will never get again. And we have another opportunity this afternoon. We have another opportunity gifted to us tomorrow. And again and again, as we interact with our neighbors, the evil times grant us precious opportunities that we must buy up. I think the question is, are we wasting our opportunity? Are we sleeping through our moment? Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, writes very vividly. And this passage of scripture is very much analogous. I mean, it's telling us you should love like Christ loves. You should walk like a child. You should walk like somebody who belongs to light. You should love as Christ loves. And, and Solomon is saying to us, I've got something you can act like that will help you seize the opportunity. In Proverbs chapter 6, he's writing and he says this, How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Now he's, he's building it something. He comes back in verse 11 and he says, So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. What he is saying is this, in effect, the sluggard is going to lose in life. Not everything is going to be lost overnight, but minute by minute, inch by inch, a little here and a little there, if you are sluggish and lethargic, and passionless and apathetic and not seizing the opportunities that are gifted to you to buy up, you're losing. And so he comes back and he gets super practical and I love what he says. I've got the solution for you. In verse six of Proverbs six, he says this, go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and note those last three words and be wise. Now we're trying to tie the Bible together. I think that's a good thing to do as we study it. Here's what we know. In the book of Acts, Luke is telling us the church was persecuted and yet it grew. The church endured hardship and the gospel was still potent. We are not defeatists, we have hope. Now we must practically get there. It's good to have that data, but how do we get there? Well, here's how we get there. When the days are evil, we walk circumspectly and we buy up the opportunities that are given to us. We walk not as fools, but as wise. How can I walk wisely? Well, Solomon says, go to the ant, consider her ways, and you will be wise. Here's how you can get that done. All of this brings together what I think is beautiful in verse 7 of Solomon's account. He says of the ant, they have no guide, 
no overseer, and no ruler, and yet the work gets done. Go to the ant, consider her ways, and be wise. Study out the ant. How many of you love ant hills in your yard? Just love them. In the house? Love to see ants on the countertop? How many of you have ever stepped on a red ant hill and not known it? That is a miserable experience. It's terrible. You know it. It just takes about 30 seconds for you to know it. And then you really know you've stepped on a red ant hill. We watch ants and, and most of us think of ants as a nuisance. But Solomon's telling us something. He is saying to us, you want to be wise, look at the ant, study her, and you will be wise. And then he comes back and he says, she has no guide, no overseer, and no ruler, and still gets the job done. The idea of guide is a judge. Here's what he says of the ant, in effect. He says, there's no need for any ant to settle a dispute or decide some duty or direct some issue that relates to labor. The ants just move around and over each other because the task is more important to them than anything else. You ever seen ants in an argument? I'm going to disagree with your assessment. Ants don't need somebody to come and settle a dispute between them. The ants are working nonstop because the cause is more important to them than anything else. The ants need no guide. They need no judge. What would the church be like if it was more like an ant colony? What would the church be like if it was a dispute-free zone? If people were peacemakers, not peacekeepers, but peacemakers, what would the church be like if there was no need to ever settle a dispute of any kind? I heard just this week, it sounds like one of those stories of a church that met its demise over the carpet color in the renovation. Now, I think there were probably leadership issues and health issues all over that church, but the breaking point was the color of the carpet. Now, I think when we get to stand before the Lord and we see the scars in his hands and we literally stand before him, I don't think we're going to care about the color of the carpet in the church unless I don't like it and then I'm sure we'd all care. Why can we not arrive at the place where the cause matters more to us than we matter to us? There's no guide, Solomon says, for the end. He goes further and he says they don't need an overseer. Basically, what he's saying is consider the ant. There's no ant there that makes sure everybody stays in line and on task. There's no ant with a little whip cracking it over other ants, making sure they come in on time. Don't you be late again. Don't you slow down the assembly line one more time. Don't you sleep on the job. There is no overseer and there is no ruler. They don't need the supervisor. They don't need someone to challenge them to work or to praise them when they do. There's no little medals that the ants are wearing around their neck for working real hard. We just want to pause and we want to acknowledge ant number three billion and four for walking across the Edwards sidewalk 704 times today. Just want to say thank you. A little pat on the back. You're doing good. Tomorrow, I want you to do it again and again until you're a little dead ant. We're going to give you medals and honor all the time. There is no medal ceremony in an ant colony. What would it be like if the family of God, the church of Christ, as we are here in this way, what would it be like if we needed no guide, no no judge for any disputes, no overseer, nobody to crack the whip? Hey, get here. Please do right. Please get here on time. Don't sleep through it. 
What would it be like if we didn't need anybody to exhort us to work or to pat us on the back when we just did our job? The ants don't need anybody to make them do it, manage them doing it, or motivate them to do it. And if we are ever going to redeem the time and buy up opportunities, Solomon said, if you want to walk wisely, go to the ant, consider her ways, and be wise. It would get us to the place where the cause mattered more to us than we mattered to us. We wouldn't have to have somebody crack the whip to get us to be in the word and to do right. We would find what the ants have, which is an internally managed and motivated passion, which is in there by instinct. God-given instinct. It's no wonder Solomon says to us, go to the ant, sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. It's like the ant has an internal eye on the future. He says in Proverbs 6, 8, she provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Ants know. God has gifted them with this instinct. They know that the season of being able to work and gather food will eventually be over. Learn from the ant. Paul writes in his letter to the church at Corinth, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Do you realize your time and my time is fleeting? This is our moment We cannot sleep through our moment. We cannot bemoan the hardship of our moment. We cannot let it pass us by. We must redeem the time, buy up the moment that has been given to us. We cannot be lethargic. We cannot be apathetic. We cannot be passionless. We must be motivated. We can't need management. We can't need constant solving of our problems. We have an internal instinct that is born of the Holy Spirit inside us to propagate the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And we have to realize Someday we're going to answer for this. Not only is the ant have an internal eye on the future, I referenced it just then. They they work according to their divinely created calling, as it were. An ant works. An ant works. You say, I have seen lazy ants. That's a cartoon movie for your kids. That's not real. Ants work. It is in them. It is part of their nature. Do you realize that a lazy Christian is a contradiction in terms? An apathetic, passive, lethargic, passionless Christian is truly a contradiction in terms. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, to serve, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Who cares what people think? Don't you wish we could all get beyond the fear of man? The fear of man brings a snare. That's what the Bible tells us. Most of us navigate life afraid of how we are being perceived or what other people will think of us. We are are pressed by everybody's expectations for us. And here's what Paul says. Do the will of God from the heart. Don't do it to please other people. Do it for God and don't concern yourself with what other people think. We have gotten to the place where everybody needs a pat on the back for simply doing the right thing. Everybody needs a pat on the back for doing what God has given them to do. That is our sacred duty. Hey, I want you to know that I I told a lost person this week about Jesus. 
Is there anything I get for that? Do we do candy like we do in the kids' rooms? Do I get candy? No. No, we're supposed to tell people about Jesus. What was going on in the early church in Jerusalem when persecution was happening was individuals were out in the marketplace telling lost people about Jesus and they were witnessing their testimony of change and they were being saved and baptized and added to the church every day because church people were informal missionaries buying up their moment in time. You're performing your sacred calling unto Christ. Keep your eye on that. Here's the simple fact. If in the book of Acts we can establish that the church was persecuted harshly and yet saw the power of God, potency of the gospel, and explosive growth, then we must be able to attain what they did because we have the same Holy Spirit and we serve the same God. But we know it didn't happen passively, and we know it didn't happen accidentally, but they were intentional and purposeful about living a life that would enable that. Paul tells us the days are evil, and seeing that the days are evil, here's how you can have a powerful move of God and a potent gospel message and experience growth corporately and personally. Walk carefully every hour, every moment. Watch where you put your foot. Serve God and don't give in to the flesh and buy up these golden opportunities that the evil days present to you because one day you're going to turn around and they're all going to be gone. And you and I are going to have to answer, walk wisely. How? Well, look at the ant. Study the ant and what you will find about the ant is they don't need any disputes settled They don't need anybody to crack a whip and they don't need anybody to pat them on the back because the cause matters more to them than they do individually. Keep your eye on the future because the fact is one day we won't be able to work anymore and all of us should be living out this life according to our sacred calling which is to propagate the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So do it. Act like you're a Christian. Act like you're a child of light. How do you do that? Jonathan Edwards. I don't think he's related to me in any way because largely his writing makes sense. I think there's a little distance between us. Jonathan Edwards wrote resolutions. They're old. (laughs) Real old. Hundreds and hundreds of years old. But they're really relevant. Here's what he said. I am resolved. Not to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. I am resolved to live with all my might while I do live. I am resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. I am resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. I am resolved to do so at all times, the thing I think is best in my devout frames and when I have the clearest notions of things of the gospel and of another world, I will always be motivated by the gospel. I am resolved to study the scripture so steadily, so constantly, and so frequently that I perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. He said this, I am resolved to ask myself at the end of every day, every week, every month, and every year, wherein I could possibly in any respect have done better. And he dated that January 11th, 1723. 
He said, I am resolved never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. I am resolved. What he was doing was he was putting pen to paper and he was saying, I desperately want to live out Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. And I'm not going to do that by simply existing. I'm only going to do that if I am intentional and purposeful and willful about carrying it out. I don't know about you, but our world tends to degeneration and corruption. And if you don't do anything with your human body, it will degenerate. Leave your garden untended, it will degenerate. Leave your yard unaddressed and it will degenerate. And I know times are busy. I get it. You don't think time is busy? Sit at a red light, let it go green, and just sit there for a few seconds. Listen to all the honks. If you ever find yourself at a revolving door and you miss one panel of it, you feel like you've wasted time. Anything like me, you walk up to an elevator, you don't just hit the button once, you pump the button until the door opens, walk onto the elevator and pump the button until the door shuts so that no one gets on the elevator with you. No conversation, no airborne germs, nobody in your personal space. Elevators are great. We need one in the next building, just so we can hide out. (laughs) Maybe a very personal confession, but an elevator would be great in the next building. I know the world is busy. I get it. I grasp it. We are all running out of time and we are all pressed for time. And yet the Apostle Paul cuts right through and he says, I'm not naive about this. Life is hard. I'm not naive about this. You do live in an evil world. I get it, he says. I struggle with it on the inside too. I know what it is to try to tell somebody about Jesus and to be stoned. I get it. I've been left in a ditch for dead. I have gone without. I know this world fights against us. But I was there when Stephen was stoned. I witnessed the power and the potency of the early church's message. I know now that I'm telling you in Ephesus, I know you're in a pagan city. I know idols are everywhere. I know there's filthiness and lewdness and wickedness and violence and idols around every corner. I'm telling you, I know the days are evil. Here's how you can still have a potent impact and explosive growth. Walk carefully. Look down at every step that you take. Don't waste a minute. Don't waste a day. I'm telling you, you must buy up these opportunities. They are so very precious. Look at the ant. Study her out. The cause matters more to her than she does. No settling of disputes. Nobody cracking the whip. No pats on the back. There's no need for it. You only have this hour. You only have this life. You only have it here now. Be resolved to use it to every degree that you can for the cause of Christ. If we could stop being defeatist about how hard the world is, And just simply let the scriptural parameters bring us to the place we realize we actually have hope. This isn't hard. This is a golden opportunity to shine a light for Jesus Christ. Don't waste it. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening 
by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.